Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be back. And uh, as Mlondi was saying before uh, we, we started, today has been, I mean, it's a very Monday-ish Monday. It, it didn't even give you that sort of easing into the work vibe. It was just yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we are also very happy to have back on the show after a bit of an absence from London Gluli. Londi, how are you doing? How is your Monday? Uh, good afternoon, Nick, and good afternoon, Herman. I'm doing absolutely well. It's a pleasure to be back and raise rock and roll. Exactly. I mean, this right, type of enthusiastic yeah, well, I mean, I, I was just about to complain about this level of enthusiasm on a Monday. I mean, this I is know, an HR is here about this. Yeah, I'm back with a bang. <laughs> um, all right, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the launch of the Rise Mzanzi Manifesto, the curious problem of doctors in South Africa not being able to find work. And lastly, we're going to finish off with a little bit of discussion about the uh, frustrating water bill, yet another one of government's silly schemes that are going to make things worse for people. But let's start off with the Rise Mzanzi Manifesto launch. So... Rise and Zanzi, there's been a bit of buzz about it. It's a new political party. Um, it's it's uh, Songhezo Zidi is its most prominent figure, who seems to be um, the face of the party for the most part. And uh, over the weekend, his party revealed its manifesto for some of the things it was going to do to tackle problems in South Africa. Now, they said that uh, crime, hunger, load shedding, water shortages, lack of job opportunities, and lack of investment were some of the main areas they wanted to tackle, which um, I think sounds very reasonable. Uh, this is not, unfortunately, they're often, you know, political parties get caught up in some sort of overly symbolic emotional issue, but I think these are some good ones to focus on. Um, during their manifesto launch, they said, quote, Give the, given the prevalence of food insecurity and hunger, Rise and Zanzi government will use a combination of state income grants and food discount vouchers for grant recipients increasing access to pipe water in rural areas, providing people with land for own food production and small-scale farming to improve food security. Uh, they also talked a little bit about how they're going to end cater deployment, as they believe that that has eroded the efficiency of the government services. Rizam Zanzi says they would uh, speed up the redistribution of land, but would use lawful expropriation to get it done. I'm not entirely sure what they consider lawful expropriation. Uh, he said that, uh, some cases of said that the bullying behavior of blue light brigades would be stopped. Um, he talked about cracking down on corruption, drug abuse. Um, said that uh, new city and rural planning will provide for a mix of government housing and service stands for those who can afford to build. We'll also provide for green zones that include stock and crop farming for our own commercial food production. Um so there's a couple of ideas, I think, here that are worth talking about. Um, it seems not too not too terrible. I think it seems what one would expect from a party that's kind of views itself, I think, as a bit of a center-left party. Um, nothing here about affirmative action, as far as I'm aware. But, Herman, what, what do you make of this manifesto? What do you make of the prospects of Rise and Zanzi? I've actually seen in Joburg quite a few posters for them, but 
I still think the party has yet to kind of break out from the pack into the media space in a big way. I don't think they've featured in any polling that I've seen so far. Well, what do you make of their manifesto and where their prospects are at, at, at the moment? Yeah, I must say um, it was a welcome read, the manifesto in general. I, I think it identifies the issues quite aptly. I was especially sort of pleased to see malnutrition um, as as something that they put on the radar. I think that is a vastly um, uh, underappreciated uh, issue in, within South African poverty, um, and it it is you know it it plays such a key role in terms of the development of South Africans into uh, a value-add economic participants that I think it is a very useful focus to add. Um, However, reading this all through, I couldn't help but feel this sounded somewhat familiar, and I couldn't quite place why until I realized this is what 2017 Sir Ramaphosa sounded like almost exactly. Almost exactly. If you leave the cadre deployment shade being thrown out of the equation, this is vintage Cyril 2017, even vintage Cyril 2018. And of all the the the, the you know uh, stuff within the manifesto that I find, I mean, all manifestos sort of run into the tedium of rhetoric with no practical implications and practical solutions of exactly how right. it, it, it doesn't matter what party it is a manifesto always ends up being a little bit like we're in favor of good things and against bad things exactly exactly and the best thing to look at is then becomes two questions for assessing a manifesto number one is what can you deduce about the values of this party not what it says about its values but what can you find underlying its policy promises because whether it can enact those or has plans to enact those it does tell you something about the underlying value assumptions of the party and then the second thing that you can look for is what legislative frameworks and powers need to be in place for this manifesto to even stand a chance of uh, delivering what it contains. And what worries me most about the Rise and Zanzi question is underlying most of what they say is the assumption of the legality, constitutionality, and moral acceptableness of race-based policies. In one of the points um, on page, where was it? On page 38, bullet point number two. And they say, we will use government procurement to provide preferential access for genuinely black and women-owned companies. How? I mean, will 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 they be? Do they have a plan for pencil testing? Uh, do do they have plans to bring back the Population Registration Act of 1950 or 1952? I can't remember that classified when someone is white and when someone is black and when someone is coloured. The underlying assumption of this entire manifesto is that the ideology that has been in power is broadly fine. Except cater deployment, that's bad. But for the rest, government is good. Government intervention is good. So it's Cyril 2017 on that. It's against cater deployment, which is fantastic. But it isn't against the processes 
that work with cadre deployment to hollow out the state as a set of skills, and that is race-based appointments. There's, it's no accident that 85% of black South Africans have seen no tangible benefit from BEE, but that the numbers of ANC millionaires um, are at all-time highs. So you can get rid of cadre deployment. Well done. That's part of the problem. But in your manifesto, you say we want to have skilled people in the right jobs. But how? How will you determine those skills? You do, you're not willing to get rid of other non-meritorious based decision-making mechanisms like BEE. In fact, you lean heavily into it throughout your manifesto. So we have to conclude that at the basis of your value foundation is race-based policies of the nature of the ANC, the ideology that the state can, through regulatory frameworks and more strenuous adherence to such frameworks, fix the problems that the state has caused. And thirdly, that you fundamentally need the underlying legislative framework that tells you, like the apartheid government did, when you are black enough to, in the words of Rise and Zanzi, be genuinely black. Uh, there's also another line, and I think it's on page, what is this, 16, about um, we will stop the corrupt abuse of BE. It's kind of, as you say, Herman, it's, it's sort of a, it's a feature, actually, of the system. You can't really get rid of, uh, you can't really keep BE and then just say, well, but, you know, there's going to be no corrupt. Um, the moment and you introduce it, these elements. It, it is quite, I, I've always found this a bit insulting. If you say we're going to appoint the best based on race. So is the implication there is that the best and being the best and being black is somehow intention. I mean, yeah. that's a fundamentally racist assumption. Steve Biko will be, you know, having a heart attack um, with this inferiority idea that black South Africans somehow can't compete on the basis of merit. I mean, it's, it's sort of really oof. No, I agree. So that's definitely a problem, I think, with this manifesto stuff uh, that they put up. But that being said, there are definitely, I think, some things here in which they have strayed a little bit away from the the, the ANC approach to things. Um, talking about investment is, as you say, um, you know, some people in the ANC have kicked it around before, but it's never really been like a serious ANC plank in their election manifesto. And in fact, when you when you see them talk about, you know, in, in, in any setting, it's always like capital this and business evil that and blah, 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 blah. So there's at least a toning down of that kind of rhetoric. I also like the stuff about providing stands for people who are willing to build. I think I think that was a I think that may even still be a DA policy, but that is uh, a, an attempt to, to get away from having to build an RDP house for absolutely everyone in the country and saying to some people, it is trusting people to actually be able to do their own thing. You say, look, if you don't want to wait for the RDP house, which is going to take five years, here's a plot of land, here's some water pipes to it, and an electricity connection point, do whatever you want, build your house. But, that's good. And, but, and I think that's a, that's a step forward. The, the problem with that is that baked into that are, are a few fundamental solutions that the Rise and Zanzi Manifesto actually makes even more difficult by being unable to address the elephants in the room. Number one... Right. It wants to legally expropriate without compensation. So the land it wants to give away might actually be 
it wants to strengthen property rights while at the same time attacking property yes. rights, but doing so in a way that is, you know, covered in legalese. But then the second problem is RDP housing, the fact that South Africans can't really own them as assets. Yes, that's part of the problem. Yeah. But you know what's also part of the problem is the entire process that is rigged by stuff like preferential procurement, Cater deployment, BEE, the entire process, I mean, fine, give them land, but number one, was that land given as property to someone because it was taken as property from someone else, in which case property rights really doesn't mean anything. And then number two, what will it look like if you don't address stuff like BEE and the preferential procurement framework that is currently baking corruption into these uh, uh, engagements that, that South Africans have with the state? So, Mlondi, let me come to you. Um, firstly, just your overall thoughts on, on what you think are Rizem Zanzi's chances uh, in general. And, and, and secondly, just I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, uh, this discussion that Herman and I are having about um, the sort of, there's this, you know, the, the manifesto pulling in two different directions that yes. kind of the center can't really hold. I don't know. What do you think about all yes. this? Yes, yeah, so uh, I'll start with my prediction. Well, it's, you know, it's always hard to like start a new party, you know, uh, from scratch, and you know, and, and you know, it's gonna be like a, a difficult task. So, you know, so to expect them to get like maybe five percent of the votes is asking too much. But I do expect them to win some vote, but I don't see it being that significant. And yeah, but I mean, they seem to be doing well. They seem to be getting all the work, uh, you know, on the ground, up and running. Like we see their posters on the road. And they're, you know, and their leaders, you know, like he's on TV, you know, uh, talking like uh, sometimes, you know, to talk about the views of the party and what the, you know, and and you know, and and what the party has to offer. So I think that's good. But uh, on your second question about the, you know, about the party's policies, I would say that uh, some of them are good. However, some of them sort of lean towards the ANC. You know, for example, saying that they're going to remove cater deployments, as Herman said, is good. But I mean, uh, what about like? Uh, you know, uh, BEE, which is a component of catered, you know, of catered, uh, you know, a deployment. So those are some concerns that I have. Maybe the party can clear that up. But yeah, it's still yeah, like, yeah, like you know, like the policies are good, but they need some revision, in, you know, in my opinion. But I'm sure that we'll get some votes here and there, but it wouldn't be uh, significant. Right, and this does this I think does create because I I think Rise Zanzi would probably be quite happy in a coalition government. Let's say the ANC and EFF together do very badly in the next election. Uh, let's just put out a number that I don't think is realistic, but let's say they get uh, 35%, EFF gets 10, and they're not able to form a coalition in national government. And I think Rise Mzanzi would be pretty happy to fit into the opposition coalition, you know, with the DA being the biggest party and then all these other parties like the IFP and Action SA and all that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, something is going to, the rubber is going to have to meet the road in that coalition. When you come to a question of, well, are we going to get rid of BEE and preferential procurement? Uh, and I think that's going to be a very big challenge for any opposition coalition is, is that these are fundamental to the problems in the country. And yet they're not being, you know, there's still this kind of belief that BEE can be saved. Uh, I don't yeah, know. True. It doesn't really seem like that to me. Yeah, um, true. Same. I agree with you. Herman, any any final thoughts before we move on? Yeah, no, I I, I do think the it we're at risk. South Africans um, have been at risk for twenty years about of learning the wrong lessons 
from the pro probably the two most successful coalition governments in our history, the government of national unity and the Cape Town municipal government of 2006 to 2009. Something that you must remember specifically about the 2006 to, to 2009, well, actually a bit longer, but that was the mayoralty of Helen Zilla. Something that people must remember about the coalition, the opposition coalition that took over Cape Town in 2006, was that there was um, less uh, empty ideological space between the parties that ultimately formed that coalition. You could, if you're going to be on the ideological spectrum of left to right, you could position the parties that formed that coalition and you will be able to, for every slot between just left, left of center to relatively right, right center, you will be able to slot in a party that covers that ideological uh, space. So the part, the coalition could operate at local government level that isn't particularly known for being an ideological level of government. It very it much more is the meat and potatoes of getting the bins handled on time. But it is crucial to make sure that there isn't a, a, a disconnect, an ideological disconnect on something as important as property rights or BEE. Baked into the idea of BEE is that race-based discrimination is fine. That is a fundamental problem for, I think, the ACDP, the Freedom Front Plus, and parts of the DA. So the moment you're going to have to have BEE as a point of contention, it's going to perhaps not in the first year or second year of a coalition, but at some point, the question of is race-based discrimination fine is going to come to the fore and it's going to be a point of tension. These things can be skirted around at local government level because local government level is really the meat and potatoes, basic stuff. It isn't heavy on ideology. I mean, the biggest ideological challenge usually at local government level is insourcing versus outsourcing. That's about the scope of ideological clash at local government. When it comes to provincial government, national government, it's a different story. And Ryzen Zanzi doesn't seem to me to be able to cozily fit into an anti-ANC uh, a multi-party coalition that can have coherence on things like race-based policies and property rights. Just as a final thought on this, it is always amusing to me that every centre-left and even far-left party in South Africa kind of uh, fundamentally views itself as being in favour of major changes. We're going to change the system, but the country has been run by the left for the last 30 years. So they're actually, generally speaking, usually in, in favour of some kind of status quo. Um, which is, I think, sort of the irony of this. Anyway, let's move on to our next story. And this is, I think, uh, I think, I think this relates a lot to some of the things we're talking about now, particularly with the pernicious influence of BE. And that is unemployment amongst young doctors in South Africa. So there was this piece in the Daily Maverick by Sonhera Sukdo Sukdeo. Um, she's a young uh, doctor. Um, she just writes about that she, you know, qualified with distinction in medical school, in high school, and and she did her two years of community service uh, that all doctors have to do by law. And um, she says that she cannot get a job. This despite the fact that our doctor-to-patient ratio is about one to 3,000 
uh, one doctor for every sort of 3,200 people. It's supposed to be closer to one to 1,000. Um, she goes on to say, quote, government posts are advertised on government websites and applicants who meet all requirements are free to apply. Many of the adverts for pediatric posts, which is what she's interested in, include a disclaimer saying that the preference will be given to African males, but everyone is encouraged to apply. She never hears back from any of these positions. She goes on to finish her piece by saying, I'm a South African citizen. My family and I have worked hard to get where we are, but we are always left behind. We have doctors who are able and willing and ready to work. We have patients desperate to get the treatment. That is their basic human right. We have our government failing us in every way possible. Also, it's uh, worth mentioning she describes herself as a, as a South African of Indian descent. I also talked to a friend of mine who is a young doctor who is currently pretty much unemployed, was doing sort of part-time assistance work about this problem and she said it's exactly correct uh, so many doctors are in this position now um you know you'll have doctors who have good uh, who are who are specialized in courses and they have all sorts of certifications but these certifications have to be renewed every year often at significant expense and um this means that it basically costs them money to stay certified and yet they still can't get positions uh, government jobs seem to be almost entirely closed to people who aren't black for the most part. Um, that's at least the sort of anecdotal experience. Uh, private practices usually seem to be quite hesitant to take on new staff and they will often just tell, uh, older doctors will often just tell young doctors to open your own practice. But that's not so easy either because uh, practices are very heavily regulated. You have to deal with water outages. You have to deal with electricity outages. You have to deal with the sort of tax requirements, the financial requirements, dealing with medical aids. And all of these are things that they don't really teach you at medical school. school. Um, as my friend said, uh, they teach you, you know, how to drain a chest. They don't teach you how to deal with all of the legalities around these things. They also are major problems with the administration of the medical system is that in some hospitals in, in government positions, you've got these people who are essentially appointed on condition that they will finish a speci specialization, you know, let's say to hearts or, or, or bowels or whatever. Um, and they collect the salary, but don't actually ever bother finishing their specialization. And presumably either due to incompetence or uh, alternatively, something more nefarious, like maybe political or nepotistic connections. A lot of these people sit in those positions and are just never disciplined or fired or moved out, despite the fact that they're not completing uh, their specializations, which means then that young doctors can't come in and fill those roles and are essentially kept out of the system. So it seems a lot to me, Mlondi, like the medical profession, which is, of course, a key industry in our country, a key, it's like, you know, when people talk about skilled jobs, um, skills that you want to attract or that you don't want to lose from your country. Like doctors are almost always at the top of that list. Uh, yes. That South Africa is really shooting itself in the foot here. And we're seeing the sort of usual concoction that has destroyed so many industries in this country of BE plus overregulation plus uh, political catered deployment, appointees, that kind of thing, just wrecking the job market. Monday, what's your take on this? Do you, do you agree with my assessment? What do you think? Yes, Nick, I agree with this, you know, like the assessments, and I think it's a really sad uh, event, you know, of things that are happening with regards to our medical students, you know, because, you know, they are important, and we do, and, you know, like, as the lady that wrote the piece said, that there is a shortage, but unfortunately, they can't get jobs, and, you know, 
it's uh, it's uh, no, it's uh, terrible, you know, like especially in a country where we have uh, such a high amount of uh, you know uh, brain drain. So this will also add to more brain drain. Then we'll end up not having doctors, and people will end up leaving. You know, uh, people who are my age and just kind of reverse, will end up leaving and saying, "So what's the point of just uh, you know uh, staying here? Like you know, like when things don't work, when we don't have jobs, so why stay?" And yeah, and all that will lead to the country even plummeting more, you know, to new lows, and we don't need that, you know, we, we you know, like, we need our uh, public services to operate efficiently, and that involves doctors, so we need to ensure that the doctors are placed in hospitals, so that also, this doesn't really also affect the doctors only, but also affects, the, you know, the patients, you know, because they, you know, like, there already is, a, you know, a shortage, and then, like, when doctors leave, when with already a shortage, then what happens, you know, so patients uh, won't get treated, and, and when patients don't get treated, they're going to die. And when they die, what happens, you know? So it's just, it's all these things, you know, that, you know, that needs to be fixed. And, and, you know, that all stems from the government, you know, that things up at the top are wrong and they need to be changed and they need to be changed fast. Exactly. Um, as, as my friend also said to me, uh, this is why Australia and other overseas countries are so promising to young, uh, to doctors. Of course, doctors are in demand in many countries in the world, not just South Africa. And apparently Australia will literally help pay you to get to you for your relocation costs if you're a doctor. Uh, you just then have to write, I believe, one medical exam in order to make sure that you're compliant with their rules. Which, you know, when we're up against that kind of competition, we need to really start worrying. Herman, what, what do you make of this? I think it is important to, at this stage, just remember that it was only about a year or two ago when it was disclosed in Parliament based on opposition, I think a DA question, that 200, more than 200 Cuban doctors were being paid in the area of, uh, and some engineers as well, were being paid by the South African government in the um, area of 300 and Kenish million rand to work. So just, just to put that into context, that, that this is the same government um, that would rather employ Cuban doctors uh, than, than make it easy for South African doctors to, um, to actually buy their trade. Now, when it comes to skills, skills become um, economically value-add when I think they, there's, you, there are three conditions met. Skills can be developed, they can be monetized, and they can be sustained. If you can develop your skills, monetize your skills and sustain your skill set as technology and processes and methods improve, then, um, then skills become an economic asset. Short of that, skills aren't really an economic asset. If we then analyze what monetize means, I would say it consists of primarily is the infrastructure Therefore, is the is the socio-economic context there for you to actually ply your trade? Do you have the necessary, you know, access to market goods, electricity, water? And then the other component of monetization is you need a reliable consumer base. If you have the infrastructure and a reliable consumer base, I think you can get to monetization. If we look at this recipe for skills to be developed to be monetized and to be sustained, the government is doing the opposite of what is needed on each of those uh, um, points. In terms of medical skills development, 
are we making progress or not? No, we're definitely making progress. Uh, no, we're not making progress because part of the package is that for three years of your life, you are going to work for the government in incredibly awful circumstances. People, I know people who wanted to go study medicine, but just couldn't uh, actually cope with the fact that for three years, they will be living and working where the state places them um, and with a lack of resources and psychological strain under that. So there's disincentives for developing medical skills. Then there's disincentives for monetizing them in the sense that you can't rely on the infrastructure that you need, nor can you rely on a, real, uh, on a reliable consumer because the South African consumer is under so much pressure in the best sense. And then there's the NHI, will be, which will become the new consumer. So the monetization point is a problem. And then there comes the question of, is it sustainable? Can you actually keep up? your skill set with what is demanded by the market. And part of that is the psychological factor of, I can do this another day. I can do this another week, another year. And it's almost as if on every, and this is generalized, not even medicine specifically, but on every point here when it comes to medicine, there's a disincentive from the government coming. And the problem is just parking back to the Ryzen Zanzi point. It's not catered deployment that has landed us here. It is a combination of factors amongst them being catered deployment. But key at the heart of this problem is the centralization of these sorts of decisions being taken by a bureaucracy, a bureaucracy that is then bloated and uh, bereft of merit due to catered deployment. But that doesn't stop the problem that the centralization is what disincentivizes here the development um, of skills, the monetization of skills, and sustain sustenance of skills for a sensible value-add proposition. So, Mlondi, when I think about solutions about how to fix this, I think maybe give doctors more tax exemptions um, than they might currently have. Uh, also, at the same time, you need to start cleaning out the state system from political appointees and kind of people who are you know, not really doing anything useful. Um, and also that the rules and regulations surrounding opening new practices should be uh, uh, made easier, made much simpler, so that newer doctors can maybe start businesses of their own, start their own practices. And while government repairs the state sector, you can at least get cheaper and more available private medication in, private medicine in. Uh, do you agree with my solution there? And what are your final thoughts on this topic? Yes, Nick, I do agree, but you've got one more thing. Uh, the government has, has to do away with the NHR policy because that policy, if that policy was to come in now as things stand, it will uh, no, it will get worse. So that NHR policy exactly. also needs to go. <laughs> needs to go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like th th that's what's so crazy about this is the, the current state of affairs with doctors not being able to find employment is before the NHI, yes. which makes every single yes. one of the programs, the problems we've just talked about, 10 times worse. Yes, um, in exactly. terms of how it's going to gum up the works. Uh, I believe doctors, for example, won't be able to open a practice unless the government gives them a, a certificate saying, yes, you're allowed to operate in this area um, uh, because there's a need for you there. So, you you know, if you were hoping to operate in a certain area, well, you're first going to have to ask Big Daddy government whether he is going to allow you to do it first, which one can sheer, scarcely imagine the level of corruption and bribery that will take place in such a system. It'd be horrifying. I'm sorry, Mladi, I interrupted you. Do you have any, any anything more to add? 
No, no further thoughts. You actually continued with my point, so you highlighted it. So I guess that was great. Okay, cool. All right. Um, yeah, no, I think let's move on for this topic. But this is what's interesting about this problem is that it's so similar to so many other industries across the country where you have overregulation, incompetence, political administration, and BE combining together to, well, also with, with the bad labor legislation to just destroy prospects for unemployment. And that's why we have unemployment of 40%-ish and, uh, you know, many services and systems across the state are failing. <laughs> oh, excuse me. All right, let's move on. So, uh, speaking of which, let's move on to our next topic, which is about overregulation and BEE. In this case, the water system. Uh, the Water Services Amendment Bill of 2023, which is currently being pushed through the legislative process by government, uh, will require everyone, so anyone who seeks to use water or supply water at the moment um, to people uh, has to get approval from the local water authority. But government wants to add a new requirement, a licensing system, which will have to be renewed every 12 months, presumably will have some sort of fee attached to it, and will also have considerations such as uh, be an affirmative action applied to the issuing of water licenses. So once again, we're creating a situation where officials, bureaucrats will be able to place another requirement on people looking to supply water, whether that be municipalities, whether that be farmers trying to feed their crops. Uh, and they can insert all sorts of wonderful little uh, bureaucratic hiccups and opportunities to shake people down for money. Uh, into the system. It's just madness. Herman, your thoughts? Yeah, very briefly, it is, I think it, it is beyond parody, where we are now at a point where the proposed solutions for state failures is the same as what caused the state failures in the first place. If you go read this bill and you go look at what Anthony Jeffrey wrote on this, it is literally a situation where it's, all right, the state has control over water resources since 1998. There have, there's been a mess in terms of the water provision for this. Infrastructure provision maintenance all within the competence of the state. Provision at a local government level, also state-based. Now we're going to get to a point where these entities that have already been part of the state will be licensed so that they can do their job that they've been supposed to be doing for the last 20 years. If that doesn't happen, the state can issue a directive to itself that must be followed to improve the failures and the directive will then indicate the extent to which the problems are ought to be fixed. If that doesn't happen, what's the wonderful fail-safe? The minister can take over the competence of that specific water provider. So the solution to state failure was state failure, was state failure, was state failure, was state failure, and the great terminator of this chain of state failure is the minister. I mean, what can go wrong? An ANC policymaker must have the world's smallest imagination. The solution is always the same to every problem. Centralize and place more requirements. Also, we need more BE. There is not a government policy you can find in the last sort of five, ten years that doesn't follow that exact pattern. Uh, Lundy, can you say anything that will make me feel better? Yes, I'm just as disappointed as the both of you. I mean, it's regulation, regulation, and more regulation and add BE to it, and more BE. So, I mean, it just never ends. It just never ends, and it's quite unfortunate. But 
hopefully things will change as a country. We have an opportunity this year to make a change where we see we need to, I mean, where we see needed. Uh, so definitely this year presents a good opportunity for us to show that we want our change and we want it now. So please, guys, go in just to vote and think wisely of who you're going to vote for. Indeed. Uh, we are going to have, I think, one more registration weekend where people will be able to register to vote in... Well, I'm not going to say the wrong date because I can't remember, but it's early February. Third, so do keep an third eye and fourth of February. Third, third and fourth, fourth of February. February. There you go. Um, yeah. So if it's wrong, you can blame Herman. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> very important because these are going to be very important elections for the future of the country, for its political makeup, um, and they also might be. It's difficult to say. There might be low turnout elections if they follow the trend of the last ones. Um, in which case, uh, it's going to be. Your vote will count even more than it normally does uh, as a proportion of the vote. So keep that in mind. Okay. That is, I think, all the time we have for today. Um, this this became much more of a downer than I was hoping for. But sadly, when you have such boneheaded government policy, just, you know, stuffing up everyone's lives, what can one do but feel a little bit of despair? But nonetheless, we will keep up the show and see you tomorrow on the Daily Friend Show. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.